electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, one of the few issues with, the, with bipartisan support in Congress is heading for primetime tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern, the first hearing from the House Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the U.S. and China, the key national security concerns, and why the chief economist of the China Beige Book says these are baby steps in solving the problems. And sticking with China, the reopening, giving those stocks a boost and sparking global growth hopes. But MKM's Michael Darda sees trouble brewing. will tell you why and why he's even concerned about Europe as well. Plus $400 billion in student loan debt is in the crosshairs of the Supreme Court. And the first steps toward a decision on loan forgiveness are underway right now. How borrowers can get themselves ready in case those payments start up again, as it looks like they might. But first, today's market action. Dom Chu with the numbers. It's been pretty range bounds. We've seen either side of that unchanged line, and it's mixed so far in trading today, but we are tilting towards the higher end for the broader S&P 500. The Dow Industrials right now, 32,800, down about one quarter of 1% or about 90 points. We are hovering just around that 4,000 mark for the S&P 500, 39.94, up 12 handles. By the way, this is right near session highs. We're up 13 so far at the highs, down 12 at the low. So again, up about a quarter, down about a quarter percent at the highs to the low this session. So that's the S&P trade. The Nasdaq composite up about 62 points, 11,529, one half of 1% gains there. The outperformer, if you want to call it that so far today. With regard to the macro, Kelly mentioned the China reopening and the positivity and optimism around that. That's driving some of the crude oil trade today. If you look at U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI prices, currently $77.51. They're still below $80, but they're recovering from yesterday's losses. We're up 2.5% right now, hovering right around the 50-day average price on a rolling basis for WTI crude. So keep an eye on that. We've already lost 19, 20% of its value over the course of the last year. So we'll watch oil prices. And then if you're looking for the stocks of the day, highs and lows, a tale of two different stocks. Dentsply, Serona, a dental supply and technology company, the best performer in the S&P. We don't often talk about it, but it reported results this morning better than expected. It's some aspects of its forecast, specifically revenue, also better than expected. Meanwhile, Norwegian Cruise Lines down about 12 percent, the worst performer in the S&P. After a bigger than expected loss, revenues were in line to slightly higher, but it's a forecast that has people worried. But it's a mixed picture, Kelly. Norwegian also said that it's never seen some of the booking strength that we've seen from the American consumer. So what does it mean? Is the consumer strong enough and wanting to spend or are they not spending enough to keep Norwegian up there towards the profitability side? I'll send things back Dom, over to you. I'm glad you highlighted dent supply because longtime viewers might chuckle and remember that the dental indicator was one of the first things that I highlighted like 10 years ago. It, it, you know what? That, it's been that long because it was about 10 years ago that I got here. I remember when you were yeah. doing the dental indicators <laughs> back in the day, back in 2013. Uh, so anyway, I still recall that. Kelly. Good. You know, it's worth paying attention. I didn't even realize that X-ray is the ticker for those That's who are listening right. up 10 percent. Dom, thank you for highlighting. Sure. All right. Our next guest says markets are acting as if there's zero 
probability of recession, but warn investors not to be fooled. There are impacts yet to be felt by tighter monetary policy. Joining me now is Emily Rowland of John Hancock Investment Management and Charlie Wabrinskoy, vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. Welcome to both of you. Are you both bearish or Emily, was that you I was quoting? That was me, Kelly. And, you know, it's unbelievable to watch the reemergence of these very cyclical higher beta or speculative leaders really coming back into the forefront here, even amidst this big repricing in terms of uh, Fed policy expectations. Another 50 basis points in Fed tightening now in the pipeline due to hotter than expected inflation data, better economic data. You know, markets sort of threw a fit about that uh, last year when we had to reprice for more rate hikes, but they seem pretty much unbothered by it. And, I, and we think that it's, you know, an important time to really think about managing risk in this environment as we watch these more speculative corners of the market taking off. Actually, Charlie, I don't even know if I should characterize you as bearish. Are you still constructive about equities? Oh, absolutely. We, we think the risk of a recession is very well understood. We wouldn't um, say that that risk is nowhere to be seen. There, there absolutely is a risk. The Fed is going to do something stupid and throw us into a recession. Um, if, if it weren't for that, however, the economy would, in fact, be quite strong. The, the American consumer represents about 70 percent of the U.S. economy, and the American consumer is in very good shape with very good labor situation, rising rates, finally getting wages that are keeping up with inflation, finally. Um, so the economy's in pretty good shape, but we can't discount the possibility the Fed does something stupid and tries to throw us into a recession. Right, but I mean, you know better than anybody, that's like saying, you know, hey, everything's fine except for, you know, this plane falling on our head. I mean, it, it's like, you know, it, you, you of all people know that the, the track record is they're probably going to, you know, overreact and then do too much and yeah. So, but that'll be short term. Look, I'm, Kelly, I'm not going to deny that that is absolutely a risk here. And some of the statements that the Fed is making wouldn't lead you to having a lot of confidence. But that will be short term. I think we're talking about will they start declining rates in the middle of this year or at the end of this year, or at the beginning of next year? We're going to get to the other side of this because inflation is coming down, Kelly. It really is. There are lots of good graphs on this. The last numbers we see we're disappointing that inflation isn't coming down as fast as some of us had hoped, but it is coming down. We're not going to get to the Fed's target of 2% this year, but we're going to get somewhere between 3 and 5 which is way down from the 7 seven and a half that we were at last year. And maybe despite kind of differing macro views, you both have some overlapping uh, stock picks or, or, or areas of interest. I mean, Emily, you think the industrials are the place to be, is that right? Yeah, I mean, we look at this trend of onshoring and reshoring being a massive a secular trend that's in place as we contend with challenges around supply chains, particularly in China, and this ongoing recognition from CEOs in the U.S. that if you're going to sell something here, you're increasingly likely to make it here. So we look at the industrials uh, sector, particularly in the mid-cap space of the U.S. market as being a big, big beneficiary of those trends. Think about, you know, materials, trucking, construction, all of those supply chains being brought back here uh, and, and all of the sort of uh, kind of tertiary elements around that really benefiting U.S. mid-cap value yeah. in particular. Although we learned from the hotel CEOs the last couple of weeks, it turns out hotels are a pretty good play on reshoring and, and uh, infrastructure as well because they've been seeing a huge increase in kind of blue-collar work driving those uh, stay nights. But back to the point about materials, uh, Charlie, Mosaic is a pick of yours, has been for a while, APA, more of an uh, energy play there. But um, do you feel, I mean, what's the, you have financials as well. I mean, Goldman, you actually really like here too. So 
So can you get sector uh, happy or does it have to be really stock specific here? We're bottom up stock pickers. We think you should try and invest in the best companies at reasonable prices. And that's exactly what Goldman is today. Everybody's focused on the consumer business, which is a small part of Goldman. It's trading for about 1.1 times book, a little more than that times tangible book. But Goldman Sachs at, at that kind of valuation is very attractive. My grandfather always taught me if you can buy a high quality bank for one times book, buy it. If it gets to two times, sell it. Goldman is a very high-quality bank trading right on top of its book value. Okay, very interesting. Emily, I'll give you the last word. I don't know if you are a, a little wary of the financials more broadly speaking. Yeah, it's not our favorite in this environment, given our call that a recession does likely unfold, given the lagged impact of Fed tightening. We are suggesting that if you're looking to deploy capital in the market right now, looking for higher-quality companies, ones with great balance sheets, lots of cash, a limited need to tap the capital markets would be our pick. We also like the more defensive equities, sort of last year's winners that sure. will benefit being less economically sensitive as we do see this big shift in consumer behavior. And I agree this consumer is holding up okay right now, but we see that becoming more and more challenged this year. So we like parts of the market like utilities, infrastructure that can benefit as consumers move away from the stuff they want. Yeah. But they keep doing the things that they need. Real quickly before we go, Charlie, would that uh, advice to sort of buy them at one, sell them at two apply to any of the banks or only the, you know, only Goldman right now? High quality names, because you got to be careful about uh, hidden losses, people that haven't reserved properly and who can't return uh, an above average return on equity. That's the beauty of Goldman. At one time's book, you think, oh, they must only be able to earn nine, ten times return on equity. They're going to do mid-teens uh, return on equity, which should justify a much higher multiple of book. All right. Thank you both today. Really appreciate it. Good to see you again. Charlie Babrinskoy and Emily Rowland. Let's move along to earnings, where at this point in the season, we're usually focused on the retailers, and there are plenty of those this week. But we're also getting a ton of clean energy plays that have been hugely popular and hugely volatile in recent years. So we asked our trader, where are the buys and which ones should you avoid right now? Joining us now is CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez, chief market strategist at Lido Advisors. She's got our trades. Phil LeBeau is here as well in studio, and he got he's got the story on some of these names. Welcome to you both, Gina. Let's start with ChargePoint. Forty-six dollars stock in late twenty-one, trading below twelve bucks today, but on pace for its second week of gains in three, up twenty percent this year. It reports Wednesday, and you like it. So I do. I mean, this is a stock that if you held it before the pandemic, you've lost 77 percent. So the hype has pretty much been taken out of this stock, but it is the world's largest charging network. And EV, uh, the, the demand for EV charging is certainly not going away. Um, the recent um, uh, Made in America EV Charging Infrastructure Act definitely supports ChargePoint. So there are things that are going to support these. But all of these names are fraught with risk right now because in the short term, they're losing money and ChargePoint is not is 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 one of those. Um, so you have to have kind of a stomach for risk in order to get to the longer term where there will be continued demand in this space. So I just want to underscore that. Sure. I want to hit plug before I bring you in, Phil, uh, because it's a very similar story. It's almost deja vu like. So you might say, well, these are two different companies. OK, well, why is the stock acting the same? Plug also is down about the same from its 2021 peak. This is more hydrogen fuel cell technology. They report after the bell tomorrow. Gina, they're also up 20% this year. Why do you like it? 
So Plug is interesting. They are forecasting that they're going to hit uh, break even this year. Now, they've also missed eight out of the last eight earnings. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, but wow. the reality is, is that the actual um, green hydrogen, so this is a hydrogen fuel cell company, very different. It's very much a pure play in the green space. Um, but their generation costs are going down. So their margins are actually improving, whereas ChargePoint, their margins are being squeezed. Yeah, right. These, so they're two very different companies. The, but the crazy thing, Phil, is the stocks are acting pretty much the same. I mean, I, I it's almost like it traces the kind of like hype and reality cycle that we've been right. through for the last couple of years with kind of EVs or alternative fuel technology. Gina's right. These have great tailwinds long term. But when do they pay off? I mean, you, she points out that plug power is going to get to break even. ChargePoint's still losing money. Wow. There's no doubt that ChargePoint is in the right area for the growth that's coming. But how do you extrapolate where they are right now to where they're going to be in 2030? We know there are going to be more chargers, but do we? Do you have any confidence that you can say, I think this company will make X, Y, Z by 2025, 2026, and whatever Tesla, it might be? Tesla opening up or, or, or signaling that it's going to open up some of its right. chargers uh, to, to more cars as well. Gina, what would you say in response to that? So here's the, the, the word here that matters is network. And the reason that ChargePoint, yes, they are absolutely losing money, um, but the inflationary pressures on the expense side of their balance sheet will eventually ease and they continue to grow their revenues. And network matters. And this is the largest charging network right now in the world. So if you're going to bet on anyone, you're going to bet on the company that's built out the largest network. Right? Gina's so right getting that, from here to there Gina, is, you're is right a long that, way. Gina, you're right that network matters. I will counter, though, that most of the people I know who use, if they're not charging at home, most people charge at home. If they are using a charger, there is no brand loyalty here. It is strictly, do they have the right chargers in the right locations? I've used ChargePoint when I've had an EV. I've also used other ones. It strictly depends on the location. Now, they have the largest network. She's right about that. But they don't have brand loyalty. I've never heard an EV owner say, I'm looking for a ChargePoint. Right. They, they don't <laughs> yeah. care. Electricity is electricity. I'll take it where I can get it. Gina? I, I totally agree with that, but I just want to have the last word here. <laughs> Location does matter. If you have the largest network okay. and you're betting the odds, then chances are you're charging on a charge point because they're everywhere. All right. Let me quickly hit for solar, then we'll kind of come back to this with Rivian. FSLR <laughs> has actually been a very differently behaved stock, and maybe it makes sense because it's a very different segment of the market. We're talking about residential solar in large part. The stock is up almost up almost 70% from late 2021. Hard to find any stock that's true of right now. It just hit a new all-time high last month. Gina, you like this combo of higher demand and falling solar prices? Yeah, I mean, this is, but this is also a stock that because of uh, just demand growing, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act also helped. Tax credits are driving further demand. This is a company that's in backlog right now. They're actually having to convert backlog into, um, uh, you know, into sales. So that revenue growth is there. It's known. Um, and they're having to make investments into further incremental capacity in order to meet that demand. So there's going to be some drag in the, in the short term on their cash because of those investments. But the long term, you can actually see sort of the path for demand there. Sure. And it's a unique kind of, uh, you know, American story as well. It's got a lot of tailwinds. We'll see how they do in earnings. We'll pivot back then, uh, Gina, after those three buys to your one bail today, which is Rivian. I think we've talked about it before. I mean, as our audience knows, the stock is down almost 90 percent from the highs around 130. They reached shortly after going public in 2021. It is up about 5 percent this year. I mean, why not take a chance here, Gina? 
Well, the thing with Rivian is this is an $80,000 ticket uh, item. So this is an item that you have to really want to buy. Um, right now, we are going into a slowdown. There's no question that, that at least consumers are starting to think twice about making these really big p ticket purchases. And they're, they're going up against you know, the Ford F-150. Um, and, and they're oddly targeting consumers that are new to EV ownership and new to truck ownership. That just seems like a really small market and one that's going to be shrinking if spending $80,000 is something you have to think twice about. But they've got the SUV also, right? I mean, yeah, I don't you know. You have the SUV. I'm going to counter Gina with this. I like this. It needs to be a recurring Amazon. <laughs> Amazon is an investor. Amazon has 100,000 of the uh, electric delivery vans on order, which they are making right now. And I'll also counter with this. I I'm not saying that Rivian is going to be off to the races today. We, we may see this stock languishing where it's at for all the reasons that Gina has pointed out. Near term. But longer term, they've got a, a, a blueprint and a game plan that's laid out. And RJ Scaringe is the real deal. It's not like you're dealing with a CEO who people are going to look at and say, eh, I don't what know, were we thinking? is this guy legit? He's legit. And I think that they will eventually find the right market for their vehicles. Now, will it happen after they come up with the next generation of vehicles, the ones that are going to be built in Georgia? That may be the case. Hmm. It may be a tough market right now for the R1T, certainly at that price point. There's no arguing about that. But I do not look at these guys and say, no way, these guys are going to wash out. Would there be a stock price, Gina, or a, a, an earnings trajectory that would make you change your mind? Look, I think that, I, first, I agree with Bill, by the way, on CEO versus CEO, no question. Um, but, but yes, there's always a price where companies like this are attractive. The problem I have with Rivian is simply that they're not taking signals from the market right now. Most EV dealers are, are bringing down their prices. They're bringing down their prices for a very real reason, um, which, well, several just to ensure that buyers are getting the appropriate tax credits. Um, and so that demand is going to help, and they are not. Um, now, whether or not they can weather that and it's going to be fine, I could be wrong, and I admit that. Um, but I will say that, that, that right now the company is digging itself into a hole um, that it's going to have to dig itself out of. And do you really want to have to sort of start four feet into the ground? All right. Sanchez v. LeBeau, you know, <laughs> SCOTUS. Uh, no, I, this is great stuff, guys. We appreciate both of you joining us today. Gina Sanchez, three buys and a bail. Phil LeBeau, always great to have you here to as here. well. Coming up, rising tensions between the U.S. and China front and center for the nation tonight. We'll look ahead to tonight's primetime House committee hearing on competition and what it means for those betting big on Chinese stocks this year. Plus, we're not out of the recession woods yet, according to MKM's Michael Darda. He'll tell us why and how the Fed could be to blame. And as we head to break, here's a look at markets with the Dow down about 100 points, but the S&P up a quarter percent, the Nasdaq up half a percent, the small caps leading the way, and the 10-year backing off the highs at 3.93%. We haven't closed above 4% since November of uh, 2019. We almost did it earlier today. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The newly formed House Committee on U.S. Competition with the Chinese Communist Party will hold its first hearing tonight at 7 Eastern, prime time. And if you want a good gauge on how Wall Street's feeling about tensions between D.C. and Beijing, look no further than Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon. Here's what he told Andrew Ross Sorkin this morning on Squawk Box. We're at a very, very tough place in the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China. And my own view is I think it's probably going to get tougher over the next couple of years before it, before it gets better. If somehow from, from our government, from a legislative process, there are changes in capital flow rules, et cetera, we'll obviously adapt to them. Um, but certainly our view is it's a more cautious time in terms of our own investment in our franchise. So yeah, Eamon Javers is here now with a look ahead to this hearing tonight and the implications, Eamon, for American companies doing business there. Hey there, Kelly. The flashpoints in the U.S.-China relationship are piling up everywhere from that spy balloon that the U.S. military shot down over South Carolina this month to the new intelligence from the Department of Energy on a potential lab leak origin for COVID in China and new questions of whether the Chinese government will provide arms to Russia for its war against Ukraine. And now this brand new congressional committee will put a spotlight on all of it in what committee members hope will be a rare bipartisan show of American unity in a very divided Congress. Three other committees are holding hearings today on China, looking into everything from TikTok to science and technology policy. But on primetime television tonight, the Select Committee on China is likely to focus on national security, human rights, and manufacturing. We'll hear from two former Trump administration figures with bipartisan pedigrees, former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster and former Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger. The committee will also hear from human rights advocate Tang Yi and Scott Paul, president of of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. But the committee has already faced its first controversy as the panel's top Republican and Democrat both criticized Republican Congressman Lance Gooden this week for questioning the loyalty of a Chinese-American congresswoman. So a lot of politics here and a lot of business at stake. Kelly, back over to you. Eamon, stay with us. My next guest says it's not just bluster. Business does have to pay attention to all of these hearings on China. Joining us now is Derek Scissors, Asia economist at the American Enterprise Institute. Derek, are you surprised to see this in prime time? What does that tell you? Well, it, I think it says the select committee really wants to emphasize public communication. Um, in conversations I've had with members of the select committee, they've said that and they're, and they're backing it up. They want to talk to the American people about these issues. They think this is maybe a little too much a DC thing, not enough a, a, an ordinary people thing to understand the, the problems in our relationship with China and with Chinese behavior. What would be the policies that could result from this, Derek, especially as it relates to American business? Or is it the beginning, and we've talked about this in recent weeks on the show, if the administration doesn't want or wants American companies to be careful doing business there, is, are they going to have to start being more explicit about that? I mean, is, is, this, is this what that in part is all about? I think there is there needs to be more explicit guidance. Um, you know, just look at the the agenda for this hearing for the select committee. National security, 
human rights and manufacturing, you're not going to get a lot of clear <clears throat> guidance when you're covering that many topics. Uh, the committee has a lot of members. They have a lot of interest. As, as Eamon said, you know, we have a lot of hearings today uh, on the Hill. Um, if, if, if the administration wants to be transparent, if Congress wants to be transparent, they're going to need to focus more and say, this is what we think about this issue and this is what we're going to do. Right now, we're at the level of China threat, China problem. That doesn't help businesses make decisions. Especially, Eamon, I'm going to paraphrase Derek's points here, because yeah. this has been a lot of talk, but actually a lot less actual action. They've been unable to issue an EO on outbound investment, unable to alter the previous administration's tariff, drop their earlier promises of an investigation into subsidies, still haven't come up with the final rule on chip export controls. I mean, those are pretty big lapses. Um, so companies might understandably feel like, well, there's really not a lot of teeth here. Well, I think you heard it from the Goldman Sachs CEO in that clip you just played, Kelly, from our interview this morning with Andrew Ross Sorkin. You know, he's talking about this possibility of an executive order, I think, on outbound investment into China and what they're calling authoritarian states. I think that's something that's very much still on the table. You know, there are all sorts of timelines for that, and it does seem to be getting kicked down the road a little bit. They have not been able to do it yet. Uh, but the idea is that this Biden administration might at some point uh, put in new rules on investment in China in certain technologies, not just some of the sort of traditional military technologies that we all think of or even dual use technologies, but more broad categories of investment in China that heretofore have been fair game for venture capital, private equity, just individual investors. All of that landscape might be changing. There's some reporting uh, from, I think it was Politico Pro this week, suggesting that uh, some areas might be off the table. Maybe bioscience investments would be still allowed and others. So it's clearly a work in progress. But those kinds of investment restrictions in China might be coming and they might be coming this year. So, Derek, we have and I was outlining what the administration maybe hasn't quite delivered. And that's a Democratic administration. We now have a Republican led Congress. How much is really likely to get done? Well, you know, without making a partisan comment, if we had a Republican-led Congress, probably, or any unified Congress, a Democratic-led Congress as well, more would get done. But of course, we have a Republican-led House and a Democratic-led Senate. Right. And that's one barrier um, where, you know, if you get something through the House on China that, that is meaningful, it's going to be difficult. Uh, same thing through the Senate. And then going across chambers where the two chambers don't necessarily cooperate is also difficult. You know, the, the Congress took up an outbound investment bill last year. The House passed it and the Senate didn't. So we see problems in the Congress on that particular issue. The Biden administration, uh, you know, has has talked about this issue for almost two years and done nothing. Um, we we're, we're definitely can talk. We can talk about a lot of issues. We'll talk about a lot of issues tonight. But it doesn't look like the bipartisan consensus extends to action. And, of course, looming in front of us is the start of the presidential election campaign. Right, right. Although it doesn't sound like this is a climate where we're going to soften things up. If I were a, a company involved in any of these sensitive areas, the, the kind of road forward looks pretty clear, even if nothing happens in the very near term. Thank you both. Derek Scissors and our Eamon Jabbers. Really appreciate it. Still ahead, chip makers can begin applying for the CHIPS Act funding starting today. But those subsidies are coming with some pretty big strings attached. We'll explain. First, though, we're all over the AI gold rush. We'll round up the latest headlines and tell you where Wall Street sees the best opportunities right now. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map where Goldman is the worst performer today. Uh, Chevron right behind it, down more than 1%. About evenly split otherwise, Dow's down 100 points. We're back after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to The Exchange. Data is the new bullets. That's one of the many headlines in the AI universe today. So let's get right to it in today's edition of Tech Check. Deirdre Bosa joins us from San Francisco with all the details. Good morning, Deirdre. The new electricity, the new oil, the list goes on and on. AI is the new blockchain, the Web3 metaverse. Ask anyone here in the Bay Area, though, but they will tell you that this is the real deal and it's already being deployed with real results. But like those other less proven technologies, companies, they're racing to get on the bandwagon and investors, well, they got to sort through what is real and what is just talk or flex tape, if you will. No shortage of AI headlines today, so let's run through them. Meta's the big one. Mark Zuckerberg last night saying that he's establishing a top-level group dedicated to AI, quote, in the short term, we'll focus on building creative and expressive tools. Over the long term, we'll focus on developing AI personas that can help people in a variety of ways. So maybe some hype here, some jumping on the bandwagon, but you can find a real story in the Financial Times today. Meta's AI-based advertising tool Advantage Plus significantly boosting campaigns already. Here's one example. Agency iProspect says, quote, it's been very lucrative for us and we've been ramping up for every $1 spent on a website ad campaign through Advantage Plus. Clients were generating $7 in returns. And that is nearly as high as before Apple's privacy changes. And that is key because going back to those pre-Apple privacy days, that is when life was a lot easier for advertisers. So the Silicon Valley joke is that Evan Spiegel is Facebook's best product developer because Meta routinely rolls out copycat features from Snapchat. Well, Snap announced its own AI integration just a few hours before Zuckerberg did yesterday. My AI is their own chatbot within its subscription service, Snapchat Plus. Evan Spiegel here, quote, the big idea is that in addition to talking to our friends and family every day, we're going to talk to AI every day, which, uh, Kelly, it's a bit of a scary thought there, I'll admit. There's just one more thing I want to mention, though. Zoom, stock that is down 86% since its pandemic high, mentioned AI four times in its conference call last night. Here is the CFO on Squawk Box. We are absolutely making investments. One of the most recent acquisitions we did was Solvi, which brought us and accelerated our development into the conversational AI as part of our contact center. And why not? It distracts from the growth issue, and there is undoubtedly a potentially huge opportunity here. We talked yesterday about Bernstein sizing the eye-popping revenue opportunity for NVIDIA. Today, it's Bank of America. They named Microsoft, Google, Meta, Apple, their top AI picks, yep. Kelly. The, in the war. That's why they use the data as the bullets analogy. Deirdre, the, okay, did you see what Sam Lesson said about the, uh, the Snap announcement yesterday? So, again, so, so that people are aware here, they're basically saying, on Snap, you can kind of interact with AI. And listen, I wish Bing still had Sydney because the new Bing without her is just totally boring and not that <laughs> yeah. useful. But anyway, I finally scary, get though. I finally get access to it. It's not even that great anymore. Um, <laughs> but Sam's point was we should have AI <laughs> be commenting on everybody's social media posts to tell us how wonderful <laughs> we are and uh, how brilliant our content is. And then, wow, wouldn't that boost engagement and make us all feel great? And uh, I, I can't decide if that idea is just you know, <laughs> nihilistic or, or brilliant. 
It depends, though, right? If you ask it to criticize social media posts, which actually I did see one account do, saying, what are some of the most annoying things that people say on their Instagram captions? And it was pretty <laughs> damning because I guarantee you, Kelly, you've seen them all before. But that's the point of this is that once it starts rolling and the ball has certainly started rolling, it picks up steam. I mean, the rate at which these AI chatbots are processing data is just incredible. And that's sort of the risks of it, too. I mean, a few weeks ago, remember, we spoke to Steve Ballmer, and he said he's not scared at all. But can you imagine right. this thing in the hands of Chinese developers? By the way, Baidu going to announce its own AI chatbot later this month or unveil at Ernie. Ernie, um, yeah. Yeah, are, are they going to have the same restrictions? Who's going to be the Cindy in that picture? Is Ernie going to be There's good or no bad? There's no way. I, I'd be amazed if they even get, you know go down that path at all. I, I know we got to let you go, Deirdre, but Me, Myself, and AI is a brilliant banner. So I just had to... Uh, we. Credit Wall Street, B of A for that. But yeah, we took it. It's good. <laughs> it's really good. Good to see you, Deirdre. Thank you, Deirdre Bosa. Coming up, the latest inflation numbers sparking fears of a more aggressive Fed. So does the soft landing camp still have a leg to stand on? Michael Darda is up next to defend the doves and make the case for cuts. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. As supporters of student debt forgiveness gathered outside the Supreme Court, conservative justices inside appeared to be skeptical about the legality of President Biden's plan to erase $400 billion of that debt. Many court observers think if the court finds the states challenging the plan have legal standing to sue, then it is almost certain the majority of justices will block the Biden move. William Rick Singer, the college admissions consultant who confessed to helping dozens of wealthy parents cheat to get their children into elite colleges, has begun his three-and-a-half-year prison sentence out of a minimum security prison in Florida. And within the last half hour, President Biden announced he is nominating Julie Sue as his next labor secretary to replace Marty Walsh when he steps down. As deputy secretary, she played a key role in the negotiations between freight rail companies and their workers late last year. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, it feels like Singer should have gotten at least four years as some kind of cosmic justice. Yes, exactly. Three and a half is a little shy. Maybe he can take some classes while he's there. Yeah, I'll see you next hour, Tyler Matheson. As the Fed Fund's futures market now implies a year-end rate of five and a quarter percent, the street is getting more used to the idea of higher for longer. My next guest, though, is sticking to his conviction that continued hikes up and maybe past that level will lead us into a very hard landing. Joining me now is Michael Darda, chief economist and market strategist at MKM Partners. Mike, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Kelly. I was afraid I'd gotten like kicked off your list or maybe per I mean, I don't think I've gotten anything from you in a month. Oh, really? Oh, uh, well... You know, our firm was just bought uh, by Roth Capital Partners, so it could have been an email issue. But, yeah, we're not ghosting you. I promise you that. All the February data is coming in. I'm like, is he changing his mind? Like, what's going on here? And and I I was being blacked out. So have you, I mean, in light of the strong January data, Mike, what would you say about the idea that we still look, as in terms of the business cycle, to be heading into a recession? Um, But there are are those out there pounding the table and saying, no, this is— the consumer is going to keep uh, going strong here. 
Yeah, it's a little surprising. I mean, we were getting a lot of weak data coming into the end of last year. January has featured surprising data to the upside. And it seems like the consensus forecasters went from a worry about imminent recession to now straight line forecasting above trend growth. And now you have people talking about no landings or soft landings. But our view is that you have to take into consideration the Fed's reaction function. The Fed does not have your back here. The Fed wants below trend growth. It wants tighter financial conditions. And it wants weakness in lagging indicators of price level pressures like the services CPI, for example. And so if you get strong data, that just reinforces a more hawkish Fed, and they'll just tighten as much as they have to to get the desired result. And below trend growth with a rising unemployment rate goes by another name, and it's called recession. So I don't think it, you know, the January data really changes the outlook. We know, obviously, the economy looked pretty strong in January. But, you know, let's not take one month one month's worth of data in straight line forecast into the future. That just doesn't, to me, that just doesn't seem to be very wise. Let's see where we are this summer and fall. That's really a danger zone for the economy. And if the Fed funds rate is up at, you know, five and a quarter, five and a half, right as things really start to weaken, the landing could be much harder than than yeah. what people have been talking about. One more. I, w- I want to talk China and Europe before I let you go. But on this point, I, and we know what they're probably going to do. But if you were in charge of setting the Fed funds rate right now, would you be lowering it? Well, I, that would cause a lot of confusion just simply because, you know, the Fed has put its parameters out there. We may disagree with their framework, but the framework is a slack-based Phillips curve model. The focus is on backward-looking indicators and you know some degree of data dependency and the data that they're dependent on just got better so if they if they shifted to cutting rates now it would create a tremendous amount of confusion what i would try to do is focus the fed more on forward looking uh, information and more on preemptive strikes and so you don't end up way behind the curve blowing through your inflation target and then having to catch up it's virtually impossible to soft land in a scenario like that. And, and I think that's the predicament for the future. Okay. And I, and kind of following from this, obviously, you're not hugely bullish on equities, um, although healthcare maybe is, is one area that you think can do okay here. Let me talk Europe because this morning, this sent our 10-year yield almost above 4%. We got stronger than expected data on Spanish and I forget, maybe French CPI. Um, we've since backed off that since our own consumer expectations came in pretty poorly. But for those in, in European equities, they say they're cheaper, they're, they're rallying more, they're, you know, and a lot of people are going international. Why do you think that Europe is in potentially even a worse situation than we are right now? Yeah, I think the eurozone is going to be in some trouble. Um, you know, we've heard a lot of commentary about global liquidity picking up, but that's not in any of the monetary aggregates. The M1 money supply figures for the euro area, very solid leading indicator, literally off a cliff. I mean, these are the worst numbers we've almost ever seen there. And in fact, you got to go back to the 2011 debt crisis to see anything like what we've been seeing recently in that data. And the inflation numbers are going to tend to lag the business cycle in Europe as well. And they're also subject to supply side shocks. And so I wouldn't get too excited about those. But the forward looking information does not look good. And the ECB, like the Fed, is chasing lagging indicators and they're set to continue tightening. Um, ongoing rate hikes in in QT starting in March. But you already have an insanely weak money supply situation over there. 
And, you know, that's an indicator to follow and to, and to take seriously. And we're also seeing weakness in the monetary aggregates in the UK, in Japan, decelerating. So, you know, this global growth reacceleration seems to be built on the back of one theme, and that's China reopening. Hmm. And there's a debate about that. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's real to the extent that they are reopening things, but the ultimate effect on global growth has, you know, really yet to be seen. And, you know, for all the hoopla, I mean, let's look at crude oil prices. Exactly. They've gone absolutely nowhere. So if there's going to be a big influence from China reopening, I mean, where is it? It doesn't sure. seem like there's any there there. No, I, it's absolutely. Mike, it's great to have you back. You know, I'll talk to Roth and see if see if I can, you know, get those emails coming again. I, we appreciate all your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Michael Darda with MKM Partners. Coming up, Target shares pairing their gains on strong earnings as the company sounds a little more cautious for the rest of the year, but they're still up 15% year-to-date, beating out Walmart and Kohl's. We'll hear from the CEO, Brian Cornell, next. Welcome back. Let's get to a quick show and tell. Shares of Target, a little higher today. They had pretty blowout earnings, strong comp sales, but guidance for the next quarter and the full year coming in a bit light. We have less than a 3% gain right now. Target CEO Brian Cornell telling Squawk Box they're working on getting back to those 2019 margins, but given the change in spending, it may take some time. We're on a multi-year journey to get back to pre-pandemic margin levels. Right now, mix is certainly impacting margins. We're selling more lower margin items like food and beverage and household essentials and less of apparel at home, but that's gonna moderate over time. So we're going to step forward in 2023, improve our op income by at least $1 billion. Still ahead, shares of a mid-sized chip maker, Skywater Technologies, they're up 66% this year. And now that companies can apply for the CHIPS Act, it's hoping to secure funds to expand. Kayla Tausche is at Skywater HQ in Minnesota. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Kelly. This facility you see behind me is used to sort and test tens of thousands of chips that come into this floor every single day. But the company wants to transform it, and it wants the Commerce Department's help. We'll tell you how. Up next. Welcome back. As of today, chip makers can apply for a slice of that $50 billion worth of incentives allocated in the CHIPS Act. Kayla Tausche is at Skywater Technology. They're a mid-cap chip maker in Minnesota with how they are hoping to use those funds to expand, Kayla. Well, Kelly, based on the density of the application, 75 single-spaced pages, companies are going to need some time to figure out exactly what the criteria are and how they can craft their application to try to most closely meet those criteria. Skywater Technology is no stranger to government grants. It got a $170 million grant from the Pentagon back in 2019 to expand this facility that you see behind me. And now the company is going to be spending billions of dollars more to transform this floor and also to uh, essentially transform this floor into a new fab that would double the company's production. Until then, most testing machines are idled in preparation to be moved. They're also uh, building out two other facilities, including one from scratch in Indiana, and they hope the federal government will provide about a third of that funding. The Commerce Department has released some strict parameters for securing that funding, including a ban on foreign expansion for leading edge manufacturing 
for 10 years. So that's not a problem for Skywater, which is a domestic only manufacturer, but it could prove trickier for the more global advanced chip makers. We will see how they respond to some of these provisions. And then there's the requirement that companies receiving more than $150 million in government funding provide affordable child care for their employees. Industry participants have already begun to question exactly where that funding would come from and whether it's within the CHIPS Act itself or whether it needs to be appropriated by Congress. But when I asked Skywater CEO Tom Sonderman what he thought of that provision, he called it fantastic. This industry is starved for female talent. Uh, about 20% um, of our industry you know, have jobs occupied by females. So to me, that's a huge uh, lever for us as a country as we try to ring, kind of bring back semiconductor manufacturing. The worker shortage has been acute, even with industry layoffs. Skywater says it has 100 jobs open, and it's seeing resumes from employees coming from Intel and Micron, where, of course, there have been uh, a lot of cost-cutting uh, going in place, Kelly. What, Kayla, what kind of chips do they make and for what kind of customers? Because, you know, these are the, we're all focused on NVIDIA. And, and NVIDIA itself is such an interesting example because what an incredible success story, but that's largely outsourced to Taiwan. And, you know, it's, I, I'd just be curious about the business segment that this one operates in. Well, the business segment that this company operates in is one that is less prone to consumer cyclicality. It doesn't service smartphones. It doesn't service um, a lot of consumer electronic devices. It mainly has customers in the healthcare, aerospace, defense, and then some Internet of Things applications, some automotive applications. But unlike some of those other companies that you just named, it doesn't really have the same exposure to the cyclicality. And that's why it feels like it has a lot of room to run in the next few years. All right. And the shares, as you mentioned, uh, reflecting that as well this year. Kayla, thank you very much, Kayla Tausche. Let's get to another Biden administration uh, initiative now, the student loan forgiveness. Supreme Court justices today reportedly sounding skeptical of the constitutionality of that program, which means your federal loan payments could soon resume after being paused during the pandemic. Sharon Epperson is here with what borrowers should be doing to prepare Sharon. Well, Kelly, the Supreme Court has indeed called into question whether more than 40 million federal student loan borrowers will have at least a portion of their debt canceled. And while we wait for the court's decision, there are important steps that borrowers should take now. First, borrowers should contact their student loan servicer to get the latest information on how much they owe, their repayment plan, and when their next payment could be due. There are also income-driven repayment plans. If a borrower is not enrolled, they should apply now. This kind of plan can lower payments based on your income. And borrowers can also set up a high-yield savings account to practice making loan payments now so they'll be ready when they resume. And if they don't need all the money saved, they'll have a nice cushion. Now, the Department of Education says loan payments will restart 60 days after litigation has been resolved. If that doesn't happen by June 30th, they say payments will resume 60 days after that, which would be the end of August. And that would give borrowers six months from now to get ready. And, and you point out you could actually ask your employer for help, right? You could definitely ask your employer for help as well. Find out if they have student debt assistance. That could mean uh, helping you with 
$5,250 a year tax-free going to a paying student loan debt. And that is something that is good every year until 2025. About 25% of companies now offer this type of benefit, according to the Employee Benefit Resource Institute, and about 24% plan to offer it. So if you are currently looking for work right now, this is something, if it's a perk you need, you definitely want to ask about it. And you also want to make sure that you ask your employer if they're offering it and kind of perhaps recommend they do if they're not currently doing it. True. Sharon, thank you. Great stuff. Sharon Epperson for us today. One in 10 Americans have a rare disease. Coming up on Power Lunch, we'll get a look at why they're so hard to treat and how corporate America is stepping up. There's Tyler Matheson getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this quick break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.